What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Four Americans are missing in Mexico tonight after they were attacked and kidnapped at the border. Officials say they went to Mexico for medical procedures. So was it mistaken identity? And where are the Americans now? Plus, Arnold Schwarzenegger taking on hate and anti-Semitism, using his macho image to send a message. Don't be a loser. There has never been a successful movement based on hate. I mean, think about that. The Nazis, losers. The Confederacy, losers. The apartheid movement, losers. And the list goes on and on. I don't want you to be a loser. And more unsettling airplane incidents. One flight, on this one flight, passengers experienced the cabin filling with smoke. On another flight, a passenger allegedly tried to stab a flight attendant and open an emergency door. On one private jet, a passenger died from turbulence. And in Boston today, two planes clipping wings on the tarmac. Is it getting less safe to fly? Okay, let's bring in our panel to talk about all this. Here with me, we have our crime and justice expert, John Miller, also political guru and hat lover, Mark McKinnon, <laughs> the always unfiltered <laughs> SE Cup, and tennis great, Patrick McEnroe. Guys, thank you very much for being here. Great to see all of you. Um, John, let's start with Mexico. This doesn't look good. This video is really chilling of what happened to these Americans. What do we know tonight? Well, what we know is they went down there uh, because the woman in the group was going for surgery, uh, cosmetic surgery. Uh, the three males who were with her were, you know, part of her support group. They came from both North and South Carolina and drove down there. Uh, the working theory is that they were mistaken for um, Haitian smugglers who are doing both um, some narcotic smuggling uh, and human trafficking on the border getting Haitians through Central America and up to the United States by that Brownsville crossing. Uh, but that's an area that's been long controlled by the Gulf cartel. They do not uh, uh, like competition um, or anybody who is not paying in. And the theory is that they mistook this group in the vehicle, um, al although with North Carolina license plates, as part of the competition and did a vehicle interdiction opened fire, wounded at least uh, one of them, and, and kidnapped the rest. So it's very fluid. So how does U.S. law enforcement find them? Well, U.S. law enforcement has no authority in Mexico, but they do have a presence. You've got the FBI, a legal attache, working out of the embassy. You've got the DEA and the U.S. Marshals. They all have very close relationships with their Mexican counterparts and do joint operations where the U.S. role is really to supply information, intelligence, support. Um, but this is, in Mexico, kidnapping isn't a federal crime. And this is a no-go area. Um, you know, Matamoros, that town over the border, is a level four do not travel to the U.S. State Department because they say people are robbed on tourist buses. They're pulled out of cars. There's carjackings. But the Gulf cartel knows that kidnapping Americans is going to be bad for business. I think the FBI and the, the Mexican state police in that state um, are going to be using all of their sources and intelligence to see if they can get these people back quickly. 
um, and hopefully alive, even though at least one of them has been wounded. Mm. There are six states. I'll put them up right now. The map of six states in Mexico that are on the do not travel list. It's scattered, obviously, around Mexico. I mean, all of this is horrible on every level. And also, Mexico is a great place to go on vacation. And it's horrible that Americans feel are feeling um, scared. And certainly this is chilling. You know, that, that's what really strikes me is that all the times I used to go to Mexico was so fantastic. I remember taking my two young daughters to Michoacan, to the origin of the butterf- monarch butterfly migration and the island of Pascuaro, where the Day of the Dead originates. And it was spectacular. And that's one of the most dangerous places in Mexico. Mm. There are so many great places to visit safe places to visit, and always check check the travel alerts. Um, definitely don't drive over the border into a warring drug cartel territory. I mean, not to blame the victims here, but like these are terrible mistakes that can be deadly. I'm just not sure that all Amer- Americans do check the travel advisories for Mexico because Mexico is such a common place. It for is. Us to- I just went. But as you put up that map, yeah. not everywhere That's right. in Mexico is a common place to go or a safe place to go. Look, we're not checking. We're not checking Canada every five days, but we should check Mexico. There are drug cartels down there that are places that are unsafe, especially for American tourists. And what are they, what are they looking at? What are they thinking? I mean, this is uh, uh, medical tourism. Um, they're going down there to get a cosmetic procedure. Uh, this can be a tummy tuck, a breast reduction. But they're talking about procedures that would be eight to ten thousand dollars here. That they're getting to five to six thousand dollars there, and with mixed results. I mean, the flip side of this story is that they've had people die from these operations. Um, but I mean, our reporting is that it was a medical procedure. Do you have new reporting that it was a cosmetic procedure? You do have no reporting. Um, I mean, to to pivot to medical tourism for a second, this is very popular. I mean, this is a growing industry. It's not just Mexico because, as you say, everything from here are the most popular medical tourism procedures, dental care, because much cheaper elsewhere, cosmetic surgery, fertility treatments, which, you know, Mm. as you know, can be so expensive here in other countries, uh, not as much, organ and tissue transplantation and cancer treatment. I mean, obviously, people will go wherever they need well, to. Well, the, to me, this is really the, the biggest issue. I mean, obviously, the, the, the safety and the issues of the hopefully the people are going to be okay, the American citizens there. But when I think about something like this happening, it, the first thing I think about is why did these – John just explained to us why they went there. But there's also – there's a lot of other reasons that people go there, whether it's a procedure, whether it's getting medicine. And why are they going there? Because it's too expensive to get it in this country because our healthcare system doesn't support a large percentage of the population with either getting treatment, whether they're voluntary or not, or getting medicines that a lot of people need. Again, we don't know specifically about these people, but that's, I look at it from 50,000 feet. Why are these people taking the chance to go to this part of the world? It, it, is our healthcare system that dire in this country that they're forced to go there? I no, find that I mean, pretty depressing. Well, I, I don't know that we can blame our healthcare system. I mean, certainly the cost is definitely uh, cheaper in other places, other countries, not just Mexico. I but mean, so is the care. Not as good sometimes. Not as good in other countries. Right. Sometimes. I mean, this sometimes is, you get what you pay for. For sure. Uh, and I'm sure that there are people watching tonight who are considering medical tourism because it seems as though it would be more affordable in other places. 
But I, I, again, John, I mean, I don't know that it's that we have a lousy medical system in this country. It's just that things cost a lot. And if you think you're going to be able to get a bargain, I just wonder if they knew that they were heading into I, I the didn't, lion's I didn't say it was lousy. Yeah. I said it wasn't working for everybody, for a lot Fair. of people, for certain people that can pay for it and they can afford certain things. You, I mean, we've got the best medical facilities in the world. But for a lot of people in this country, they're, I feel like they, they feel like they have to go somewhere where it's considerably cheaper, and in this case, very dangerous. That's fair. Um, so, John, what's next? How are we going to find out what happened here? So the Mexican authorities are working with their American partners, um, and they're trying to, A, use human sources, B, um, use other intelligence methods, and C, frankly, um, use us all to get that message to them, saying, if you have these people and they're hurt, let's move them to somewhere safe, and I think the, the subliminal message there is not that subliminal, which is if there's four Americans killed because a cartel messed up and thought that they were involved in some other criminal operation and slaughtered them, that's not going to be good for the cartel. That's going to come do? at a what price. What would we do? Yeah. What would, our, what would our response be to something well, like we, that? Well, we've done it before. And, you know, that requires the cooperation of the Mexican government. But that would mean a crackdown. I mean, there was a showdown in that same town between the FBI, the DEA, and a cartel where they, you know, it was literally a standoff that worked out without the agents getting killed, but it was followed with a crackdown, which is a message that, you know, there are lines, even for places where it, the perception is that there's a separate government run by a criminal enterprise. You know, the Gulf Cartel has controlled that area for literally decades. They had an enforcement group called Los Zetos that they gave birth to that then went to war with them. Um, So, I mean, this has been, those towns where this occurred were ghost towns because of the war. People had to flee and the army had to come back and bring them home and maintain a presence just to get to something back to normal. So what you're seeing today is a symptom of something much larger. But meaning the Mexican government would hand them over to the U.S. for prosecution? That's what would happen? if Well, something- that, that happens often with big cartel bosses, not all the time, where they know we're not going to be able to contain this person over a period of time in a Mexican prison. So, you know, they'll extradite them to the United States. In this case, the pressure point is to get the cartel to hand these victims over as quickly as possible and hopefully alive. And does that happen? Uh, we'll know when we know. We certainly hope so. We certainly hope so. Their families are um, obviously panicking tonight and praying. Thank you, everyone. Stick around if you would. More unsettling events on airplanes in just the past 24 hours. We have one from Boston to Havana. We have other ones flying across country. We'll tell you what's happening in the skies. A United Airlines passenger is facing charges tonight after allegedly trying to open an emergency door to jump out and trying to stab a flight attendant with a broken metal spoon. This happened on a flight from Los Angeles to Boston today. Also today, one United plane clipped another on the tarmac at Boston's Logan Airport, 
This plane was being towed, so moving very slowly, and thankfully no one was hurt. But Logan is the same place where two other planes nearly collided last week. Let's bring in our panel. I'm not trying to be alarmist, guys. I'm actually not going looking for these stories. I, I hate that this is becoming a, re- a, a like, regular recurring feature. segment. It is. It's a recur- On the show. It is a recurring segment. That's not and your I fault. I intend this to I happen. So much, so much for like real spoons. Now we're going to have to get the plastic spoons on the plane now. because We of thought this. the we spoons were the safe, knives. but right. they're not. Now we've lost Nothing knives safe. and now spoons. He actually went into the bathroom and like broke the metal in half and so that right. makes it make you it know sharp. really shank. jagged yeah. and a shank yeah, I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm gonna skateboard to dc tomorrow you should <laughs> that would be safer <laughs> on the highway while, but it'll be safer. on the highway but I, I mean i don't even uh, well let's just dive dive into some of these because one that is really frightening is the clear air turbulence that we've had two incidents of this in the past few days this one was on a private plane going from new hampshire to vermont it had to be diverted to connecticut and somebody died on this plane as a result of from this. From the turbulence? From the turbulence. I mean, I, I, that is so frightening on every level. Here is what um, uh, Peter Goles, who's a former NTSB, says about how that can happen. It, it is a dangerous environment at, at cruise altitude. People have laptops out. And the flight crew are servicing the passengers. The carts that they're moving can weigh in excess of 300 pounds. And you hit some clear air turbulence, that cart hits the ceiling, uh, you know, the roof of the aircraft. It can, it can kill people. The most important thing for passengers to do is to keep their seatbelt on from the moment they get on the plane until the bell rings and they can exit. If they have to go to the restroom, don't linger. That's a wake up call for me. I mean, it it really is like, you know, when they say keep your seatbelt on and you're like, yeah, yeah. I was on the cross country flight, in fact, a week ago with my daughter. And she said, Dad, this is ridiculous. Why do we get to keep the seatbelt on, you know, when you're in the middle of the flight? I said, if there's turbulence, you could, you know, jump up. And here it is. But I, I mean, I hear these rumors, these stories about is it globe, globe, the climate changing has something to do with this. I certainly don't know the answer to that. But for someone who spent a big part of my life on planes, uh, it's usually I feel like oh, I can get on the plane, I can relax, I can catch up on all my reading. I mean, this is scary I stuff. Mean, is is there evidence that. here that this is being caused by what, more flights, climate I mean, whatever. Well, whenever I mean, we've had you know one of our airline experts on, there's a few different things that are happening, as we know. So yes, they're trying to catch up. That you know there had been, um, as you know, a lull during COVID, and now there's a backlog, and they're trying to catch up, and they're doing more flights. But they also say that um, obviously systems need to be upgraded. Mm-hmm. They haven't done that. Um, the you know obviously Congress needs to appropriate more money for systems to be upgraded, and there is a an aviation trust fund that we all pay into that has billions of dollars waiting around, and they could do that, but they haven't appropriated well, that. That'll be top yet. of the list on the debt ceiling discussion, I'm sure. So and <laughs> confirm um, an FAA, right? Um, yes. Confirm a director. Administrator, yeah. yes. Right, who can maybe oversee some of these problems. I, because we talk about this all the time, yes, and I'm always, quick to remi- I'm always quick to remind, flying's very safe. Um, but the guy that tried to stab the flight attendant mm. um, and open the emergency door, mm-hmm. I've, I've long said, we'll like, try the, to. the people on the plane are what scare me the most yeah. because I'm on TikTok and I see <laughs> all the bad actors and the freakouts and the flight, you know, um, delays and because of people, not 
turbulence and wing clipping and all these other things that are Well, terrifying. that's one of the things that has changed. It's just more anxiety, more stress, more yes. crazies. Yes. And yeah. it, that's what terrifies me. I'm getting on a plane on Friday to go to, to go to South by Southwest, Austin, which is where one of these things that you were just talking about happened from. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, you know, it's a little unnerving now with all these stories in the news. I feel like constantly. For sure. For sure. It's a scary side. The people side is scary. I feel someone's yeah. going to lose it. Someone's going to get drunk on the plane. And these drunk issues, is fine. That, losing well, it. Well, but that losing might be it me. because they're drunk. <laughs> and then there's the other side, which yeah. is, you know, the old, the old argument, get, get, get government out of our lives, right? Well, government is who's supposed to be monitoring these things, whether it's the trains, whether it's the subways, whether it's the planes, right? That's the money, our taxpayer dollars are supposed to go to the government so that they can keep us all safe. Um, John, speaking of what uh, SE's biggest fear is, which is the people, you know, there are um, terrorism experts who do behavioral profiling, as you well know, at airports, so that you can weed out some of the people who are going to go crazy on a flight. But I don't think we're doing a good job of that. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, the... The behavioral tells that they're looking for are, you know, the professional terrorist who's examining security closely and looking at screening and secreting things. The person who's on an emotional roller coaster that may snap in the middle of a flight because of other stressors, um, that is a different kind of reading. The professional Karen or the professional, (laughs) you know, nut or the professional person who's going to lose it. Because some guy's sitting too close or I, some crazy reason that you I mean, just can't I predict. If you look at our bigger picture here, yeah. um, you know, from the 1970s, when we used to have 2,000 people, you know, killed in air accidents every year, and that was 1,900 and then 1,600, and, you know, it's gone down steadily over time as flights have gone up. But we are seeing some perfect stormy stuff here. You've got a highly regulated industry that is also highly competitive and also operating on very thin margins. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen how many airlines have we yep. seen go away uh, or have to merge? But you also have the highly regulated industry, as Essie pointed out, um, being regulated by an understaffed and underfunded agency as you're seeing small airports that aren't getting any bigger, more crowded runways and more flights trying to cram into the same airspace closer together, moving faster. What did, our, what did our aeronautic expert tell us last week about turbulence? It's not as bad if you slow down. But if you're running on that schedule, you know, and you've got to stay on that ball, um, slowing down is counterintuitive to the commercial model. So something needs to balance yeah. this. I think we've all gotten very good at articulating the problem and so now we hopefully will come up with the solution soon, since yeah, the when problem we come back. keeps presenting. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we need another COVID we, outbreak. Yeah. <laughs> Bite your tongue. Um, okay, next. Uh, Tucker Carlson is airing the January 6th footage that he was given by Kevin McCarthy, claiming that the rioters were just sightseers. Everyone stay with us because we have a lot to say about what's on these new tapes. All right. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave Tucker Carlson exclusive access to hours and hours of previously unreleased video from the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And tonight, Carlson aired some of it. Let's talk about this with John Miller, Mark McKinnon, Essie Cup, 
Patrick McEnroe, and our senior media reporter Oliver Darcy is parachuting in for this segment. Mm. Here's what Tucker just said, Oliver. Um, the crowd was <laughs> the crowd was enormous. He says a small percentage of them were hooligans. They committed vandalism. You've seen their pictures again and again, but the overwhelming majority were not. They were peaceful, orderly, and neat. They were sightseers. I mean, yeah. that's, that wasn't the news part of that day. The news part of the day was that there was an insurrection. It was the hundreds of people who caused damage and injury and insurrection. I think he's missing maybe the headline from that day. Yeah, and how they got in the Capitol by overrunning the Capitol Police. That, that, that's, that's a key part of this, obviously. Um, what we saw tonight, Allison, from Tucker is, is nothing new. He has been trying to sanitize the very real violence that we all saw uh, unfold at the U.S. Capitol in real time for uh, quite some time now. I, I think what's really notable here is that he had a very key assist from Kevin McCarthy, someone who was at the Capitol on that day, who condemned the violence in the immediate wake of that attack, but has since uh, tried to get back in the uh, good graces of Trump and, and the MAGA fan base. And so what's so key here is that he helped Tucker Carlson try to rewrite history by giving him this surveillance footage, surveillance footage that he denied to actual news organizations. And now Tucker Carlson's back at his usual game of, of trying to, uh, I mean, not even trying to, of lying to, to his audience about uh, the events of that day. Guys, um, they were sightseers, according to Tucker. I think this is a huge strategic misfire for, for Carlson, for McCarthy, for that whole ecosystem, because the last thing common sense Republicans want to do is relitigate January 6th. They want to move on. They want to move forward. And this is just bringing it all back up. And anybody who sees this tape has also seen the other tape of cops being terrorized, beaten, and 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 uh, had incredible violence inflicted upon them. So this is only going to hurt the cause. It just shows. Sorry, okay. I, it just shows how little um, Tucker and Fox News think of their audience. That they could play a tape that is so edited, right, and only mention the part that's convenient for his argument, forgetting that we've all seen the rest of it and we all know the big story. He can just say they're just sightseers, which is like saying Pearl Harbor was just an air show. I mean, it's, it's absurd. But the entertainment side of Fox News has taken over the news side of Fox News. And the entertainment side started um, pushing the news side to do what they were doing. And a number of them followed suit. This is a joke. You should not call Fox News news because anyone editing film and footage like this and then lying to viewers' faces is in the entertainment business and not even particularly entertaining at this that. Is, this is the part that I just find confusing because, I mean, you talk about a strategic misfire um, on the po political side. On the media side, um, on any other day, this might be just Fox being Fox. But, I mean, as Oliver would, would tell us, you know, we've just been through two weeks of discovery in a civil suit where we're seeing memos coming out from people like Tucker Carlson saying, <laughs> we know the truth that the election wasn't rigged, but our audience might not like that, so we've got to keep pushing the <laughs> fake story. That, for a major media organization considered one of the country's networks, is a great deal of ethical exposure out there. Would you pick that particular moment in time to say, mm. I'm going to take the star who's at the center of mm -hmm. this deception, push him forward, and have him say, hello, history? 
Get me rewrite. I need these <laughs> tapes re-edited and played like it was a garden party. Speaking of ethics, <clears throat> I don't. I mean, call, I'm the rookie here. Okay, I'm the rookie on the panel. But can somebody explain to me how Kevin McCarthy can get away with giving these tapes to one person or one network? I mean, whether it's CNN or Fox or whomever. How in the world can you get away with that? In the words of Mel Brooks, it's good to be speaker. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he claimed to to say, you know, sunlight. uh, We should get more sunlight on this. That doesn't cast any sunlight Why would you just give it to everybody in the news media? Oliver, what's the answer? I I think this just shows that Tucker Carlson's the real king inside the GOP. And so uh, you see Kevin McCarthy now grovel before the feet of Tucker Carlson. Last year, you remember when Ted Cruz called uh, January 6th, he said it was a terrorist attack. Uh, He had to go plead with Tucker Carlson for forgiveness in a really (laughs) awkward interview. This shows that Tucker Carlson really calls the shots, not those traditional GOP lawmakers. The power dynamics inside the GOP has completely shifted to people like Carlson on Fox News. And I'd also note that tonight, Tucker Carlson was back on his program sowing doubts about the legitimacy of the 2020 election. This is really, you know, when I watch Fox, this is really, really what drives, it seems like, the audience. They don't want to believe that the election was was fair and, and Biden was rightfully elected. They want to believe in this fantasy that has been sold to them by bad faith actors. And Tucker Carlson is happy to capitalize on that and give it give them what they want, no matter how shameless uh, it really is on his part. I want to also talk about the victims here and how they are feeling. As we know, 140 police officers were injured that day, some of them grievously. Some of them died. And so, as you know, the uh, Sicknick family um, are the people who are still grieving because their son was killed. So here's what they've put out a statement tonight about this. What will it take to silence the lies from people like Carlson? What will it take to convince people, that the January 6th insurrection was very real, was very violent, and that the event was orchestrated by a man who is every bit as corrupt and evil as Vladimir Putin. The Sicknick family would love nothing more than have Brian back with us and to resume our normal lives. Fictitious news outlets like Fox and its rabid followers will not allow that. Every time the pain of that day seems to have ebbed a bit, organizations like Fox rip our wounds wide open again, and we are frankly sick of it. Leave us the hell alone. And instead of spreading more lies from Supreme Leader Trump, why don't you focus on real news? Yikes. Mm. That would be wonderful if we could get a response from Fox uh, to the Sicknick family about how they feel about that. One more thing about Tucker and his show. You'll remember in uh, 2020, he was sued, um, uh, I think, in McDougal versus Fox News Network. And the judge there or maybe it was Tucker's own attorney, the general tenor of the show should inform a viewer that he's not stating actual facts about the topics he discusses. He's instead engaging in exaggeration and non-literal commentary. Let's just all remember that at all times. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, uh, okay, we're segueing now, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about this clip we're about to see from the circus and what you're working on when you're not here. Well, I think this is uh, our, our colleague and uh, guest host, Tim Miller, interviewing Carrie Lake and, and raises the issue of if you're trying to expand the party, why did you tell John McCain supporters to get the hell out of a room that she was in? And then she has some, some observations about Tim's fashion choices. Oh, let's watch it. Haley and uh, Pompeo in there saying that we've lost three straight elections. 
that it's time to change the strategy, maybe appeal out to more moderate voters. Uh, you just lost an election. What say you to that? Well, they like to say we lost elections. We're having corrupt, stolen elections, okay? We're having corrupt, stolen elections. President Trump won that election in 2020. He did. There was corruption. I know you don't believe it, and you don't want to look at it. And they stole the election from me, and you guys have But don't you think you really lost the election because you didn't reach out to the McCain voters, the Quake voters? You told the McCain voters to get out of the room. No, I didn't. You know what? And you campaigned hard MAGA. That's fake news. I went to your last event. It was Steve Bannon. It was all these guys. It was hard MAGA. You weren't appealing to my people. You weren't appealing to moderate Republicans. Maybe you would have won if you would have done that. May I have a word? Did you want to do a meeting? You? So the clip ends with her saying, she gets a little, he clearly gets under her skin and she says, how old are you? And Tim says 41. And she says, well, you dress like a 13 year old. Now she calls Steve Bannon a stud muffin, that, that fashionista Steve. High-minded Steve, stuff, Steve, really high-minded yeah, stuff. That's yeah. a great counter argument. <laughs> Um, you didn't bring out the old fake news. Lake. Bring out the old fake news. Yeah, there's so nothing you can't doubt, staff with that. When in doubt, that doubt, it's fake well, news. So it is true. Yeah. It's true he dresses like a 30-year-old, but I... I, 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 I <laughs> Whose like side are you on? I like his choices. I like a 30-year-old. <laughs> As uh, someone who is also accused of being a fashionista, Mark McKinnon. <laughs> All right, thank you very much for bringing us that clip. Stick around, everybody. Chris Rock is now talking about that Will Smith slap in the middle of the Oscars. And we're going to tell you what he's saying next. Words hurt. That's what they say. Got to watch what you say, because words hurt. You know, anybody that says words hurt has never been punched in the face. It's been almost a year since Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage at the Oscars after Rock made a joke about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. Rock is finally talking about the incident this weekend during his live streaming special on Netflix. Y'all know what happened to me, getting smacked by Suge Smith. It still hurts. I got summertime ringing in my ear. I love Will Smith. My whole life I love this My whole life I root for this okay? And now I, I watch Emancipation just to see him get whooped. Kieran Amaya joins us now, and we're back with Mark McKinnon, Essie Cup, and Patrick McEnroe. Kieran, what did you think? Oh, my goodness. So many things. <laughs> so many thoughts. I can't wait okay, to hear. So, so my first note is, like, I think that I feel about black male comics... What I feel about black male rappers, we are family, but I got beef <laughs> with a lot. You don't call Jada Pinkett a bee in Baltimore, for one. Mm. I just think that there were some low blows that um, I, I, I think his ultimate goal was to squash this. But as we know in the streets, like he created something more here. He extended this beef, in my opinion. And I just think that, you know, black women have far too often been the um, the ping pong, like we getting ping ponged around. Jada didn't deserve what she got from him. Um, and I'm just really not into this idea that this right-inspired, anti-woke, anti-everything that has to do with protecting marginalized groups is the kind of populism 
that black people should tip into. I think those are very dangerous waters. I don't play that game. I know a lot of black people who don't really play that game. So when we're talking about woke and we're talking about uh, cancel culture and things of that nature, in our community in particular, um, there's a real fine line. Sure, many people are over having to change programs. Yeah. It's like ridiculous things that, in my opinion, folks should be able to very quickly get over themselves. Yeah. But beyond that, um, Chris Rock is someone who we think of as being kind of politically astute as far yeah. as comedy goes. But I just think in this case, um, this is not going to be remembered as like his best comedic moment. In the intro, you got the best numbers right this there. This is interesting to me because... It's not memorable. What's interesting, I think, is that for a year, people lauded Chris Rock for not returning fire with verbal fire. Yeah. People asked him all the time, what do you want to say to Will Smith? And right. he took the high road. What? He said nothing. He didn't go after you him. You talk about lying in wait. I mean, this guy was lying in wait yeah. for a year. He was prepping himself and he, he was going through what he needed to go through in his own mind to make his point and to say what he said. Now, first of all, I personally thought there were some very funny moments in the overall act. I mean, and I, I will play some of those. I will play some of those because I think Chris Rock I, is, is brilliant. I will. But first, I want to play the part where he talks about Will Smith's marriage, which, well, that's, may, that which I, I think it too. may yes. not be the high road. Yeah. So here's mm-hmm. this moment. Will Smith practices selective outrage. Practices selective outrage. Because everybody knows what the f*** happened. Everybody that really knows, knows I had nothing to do with that I didn't have any entanglements. She hurt him way more than he hurt me, okay? Okay? Um, the not taking the high I, road. I, I think I think it's difficult to see like so much dirty laundry coming out. You know, these are I know they're celebrities. I know they're multi. Except Will and Jada yeah, talked they, about I, it well, on that, the show. Well, they, I understand that they okay. talked about it and and they went on different shows and continue to talk mm-hmm. about it. And so that makes you more susceptible for others talking about it. But still, I mean, look, still they're still human beings. They're still people. Yeah. Whether how much money they have. It, I mean, okay. it's still, Essie. to me, that's like, God, it's a little much. Mm-hmm. But I got to well, say, okay. Chris Rock, I mean, he was. I'll get to the oof. other funny ones too, but yeah. Essie, go. I'm glad Kieran is here because we are bystanders to this community. I'm not a part of this community. So as a bystander, I can look very differently at this and think, well, I hated what Will Smith did, and mm-hmm. I'm glad Chris Rock got his revenge. That's my privilege, being outside of this community. So I really appreciate your nuanced position inside the community and what this means in a completely different lens than I get to view it, which is just good. I'm glad that he got back and he waited a year to to do it. And And not only white people feel that way, like people take sides, right? So people feel like they have to be pro or anti this thing because they're either pro or anti what happened, right? And whether or not they stand behind Will in that way. That's fine. To me, again, the larger issues, like, I'm, go- I'm good for anybody's comedy bit. I think it's great that we have comedians that are taking on topics of the day. I just think, again, some low-hanging fruit is not the way to go at this level of your career. And there was a whole year to work this out. And to me, this just isn't Chris at his, his 
best. Well, and you said it. Look, you assumed he was trying to quash this. I don't think that's what. I mean, I don't get that's, that sense that's from this. That's not. Yeah, no. This is like he just said it. It's yeah. Quash. No, you just say said it. it up for a payday. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah it's um, on forever. Huh? Well, I promised that I would play one more, and this I think is where Will Smith, no, where Chris Rock has always been at his best, which is self-deprecating humor. So here's this last one. But I'm not a victim, baby. You will never see me on Oprah or Gail crying. You will never see it. Never gonna happen. I couldn't believe it. And I love men in black. No. It's never gonna happen. No. that Took that hit like Pacquiao. Will Smith played Muhammad Ali in a movie. You think I auditioned for that part? He played Muhammad Ali. I played Pookie in New Jack City. <laughs> I mean, you know, Chris Rock is really, really funny. He's good. I take, yeah, he's, he's good. good. I take all of your points that <gasps> did he have to go there. All right, everyone, stay with me. Because Djokovic withdrawing from another tournament, hmm, Patrick, <laughs> the latest one he's had to withdraw from because of his lack of a COVID vaccine. Is it time to let the vaccination status go? We'll discuss. Novak Djokovic withdrawing from a U.S. tennis tournament. The tennis superstar had hoped to get special permission to play despite being unvaccinated against COVID-19. But international visitors to the U.S. are still required to be vaccinated to enter the country. We're back with the panel. Patrick, is it time to stop the, it, it, the took, requirement. it took a tennis topic for you to come to me yes, first. Yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> my God. It finally happened. happened. So finally happened. happened. I, mean, I there, can't believe it. Is there anybody better to comment on health uh, <laughs> and policy, I'll, health I'll, policy, I'll, than I'll, you? I don't know about yes. that, but I'll give you the tennis version of it, okay? Novak Djokovic is the best tennis player on the planet as we speak. He will end up being the greatest tennis player on the, in history, uh, certainly on the men's wow. side. we got a woman named Serena Williams who was pretty darn good on the women's side. And we all in the tennis world would love to see him back playing in these big tournaments coming up in Indian Wells and in Miami. There's two big events coming up. But the U.S. government says if you're not vaccinated, you can't get into the country. Now, of course, I think we'd probably all agree that we seem to be sort of past the worst of it. And he's unvaccinated. Now, I will also say he's the only tennis player that's not been vaccinated. That's a that's a top 100 or 200 player in the entire world. And many of the other players from other countries, particularly from some of the Eastern European countries, did not want to get vaccinated when the vaccine initially came out. Eventually they did. Why? Because they wanted to continue their careers. Novak made the decision not to do that. He's paid a heavy price not being able to go to the Australian Open, play the U.S. Open tournaments that he could have won. He should have more than 22 majors, which he has right now tied with Rafael Nadal. Um, But if you change the rules for him, then you've got to change the rules for everyone else that wants to get into the country, whether it's an athlete, a musician, a writer, a worker. And is it time to change the rules? It is time to change. It's going to happen in May. Yeah, it's going to happen it, on May 11th. I mean, it's March. Should we I, change the rules now I, to let international well, visitors I'm in? I'm not a government expert, as you probably realize. <laughs> I you, do thank not you for that. that. And but they do need. They seem to need months and months of planning to make sure all the logistical issues are in place, not just for one person, 
but for populations coming in from yep. all over the world. Okay, so here are my two questions for the rest of the panel. Is it time to change the vaccination status for incoming travelers, number one? And number two, should he just be able to get a waiver? He is special. I mean, that is getting, that is special treatment for somebody. Should he get a waiver? If no. We, no. No, the rules no, should apply no. across no. the board. Everybody. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yes. that a favor, yes. Like, if we're giving out waivers, we break rules all the time. I think in this case, like, yeah. I'm, I'm more in favor of giving one guy a waiver than I am just saying, come on, everybody, unvaccinated. Va- like, what does that look like? How many people are we talking about? I mean, maybe we're past it. Maybe we're not. Maybe not. He's Mark, made the choice, and he has said, this is the price I'm willing to pay. Um, foregoing competitions to not get vaccinated. Two months he from and, now, we can go play. He and Aaron Rodgers can go hang in a darkness, darkness retreat, retreat together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for working that in. All right, very now, good. All right, we have a lot of really interesting <laughs> stories coming up. Arnold Schwarzenegger is out with a warning to anti Semites. There's also a therapist who's created an AI boyfriend. And a woman hopes to have her murdered fiance's babies. My God. Yes, stick around, please. <laughs> stick around. All of that is ahead. Next. Yes. <laughs> We're getting a new image tonight of the minivan driven by four Americans who have been kidnapped in Mexico. There it is. And I don't know if you can see this, but there are bullet holes on the side door and window. U.S. officials believe a Mexican cartel mistook the Americans for drug smugglers. My panel is going to join me here to talk about it. But first, CNN's Josh Campbell is on this story for us. Josh, what do we know at this hour about these missing Americans? Allison, a source familiar with this investigation tells me that it appears as though this was a case of mistaken identity and that these four Americans who had traveled from Texas into Mexico in order to, what the source says, uh, obtain a medical procedure were targeted by this cartel who thought that they were attacking a Haitian drug smuggling group. Of course, we've seen rival gangs, rival factions along the U.S.-Mexico border engage in violence. It appears as though these Americans were caught up in that. Now, a uh, source tells me that the reason why investigators believe they were there for a medical procedure was because they actually uh, processed the scene after this attack and found inside that vehicle receipts uh, indicating that there was a procedure that was underway. And so, again, this is just extremely frightening because we know that there are so many Americans and Canadians, for example, who frequently travel into Mexico in order to obtain low-cost prescription drugs, in order to obtain uh, lower um, uh, medical services. And I wanted to show you this video. I'll warn you that this is extremely extremely graphic. This is what a source says uh, happened at the uh, end of this incident. Now, we don't know that these individuals are the actual Americans, but again, a source says this is related. You see people being loaded into the back of this truck at gunpoint. Again, this uh, video is graphic. You see a woman who is being shoved in the back of the vehicle. You see a number of individuals who don't appear to be moving, who are then loaded into that truck. So at this hour, investigators are trying to locate where these American citizens are. Allison, the FBI right now offering a $50,000 reward leading to their rescue and the identification of their captors. And Josh, I understand that when you were an agent in the FBI, before you worked here, of course, you worked on these global kidnapping investigations. So how difficult will it be to locate these victims? 
It is extremely difficult to work any kidnapping investigation, but particularly when you're dealing in a foreign environment. I mean, the FBI can't go wherever it wants around Mexico chasing down leads. And so they're having to work closely with Mexican officials uh, in order to determine if they can find out where these people are in order to try to make contact with these attackers. I, I have nothing, you know, I wish I had better news, but this appears very grim because as an FBI agent working these cases, the first thing you ask yourself is, do the captors appear to be prone to violence? Do they appear to be rational rational? reasonable. In this case, according to a source I spoke with, they said that this began with a violent act, this cartel unleashing a barrage of gunfire. And so, you know, the question is, is what did they do with these individuals after they took them away? I will end with this. And, you know, this is somewhat of a personal note, but, uh, you know, I have no doubt that the FBI is working hard. I know in talking to sources that they're working to find these Americans. But, you know, it's now uh, just after 11 o'clock on the East Coast. For people who are winding down your day and getting ready to call it a night, you know, I can tell you from experience as, as an FBI agent, there is no greater sinking feeling than knowing you are ending the day while there are victims that are still being held captive. It is a gut-wrenching realization. It is a motivating realization in the sense that you want to work relentlessly. So I have no doubt that the FBI agents down there are working tirelessly to try to find them. The question is, Allison, will they be able to find these Americans before any further harm is brought to them? Yeah, absolutely, Josh. Thank you for all that context. Let's bring in my panel. We have Nayara Hawk here, Mike Broomhead, Emma Goldberg, and Kaivon Schroff. Um, great to have all of you guys here. Uh, Nayara, you were at the State Department. Mm-hmm. What happens when Americans go missing in Mexico? Oh, Mexico is such a challenge right now, given the longstanding relationship uh, in trying to coordinate with the Mexican government in the war on drugs, right, going back to the 1980s. But you had just as recently as 2020, two years ago, the former minister of defense arrested for letting cartels bring in thousands and thousands of kilos of heroin into the United States. The levels of corruption run deep. Uh, The United States has been trying to make some sense of who they can trust. Police in Mexico moonlight uh, as cartel security. So that is some of what we're trying to unpack. I will say, though, there is nothing that would unite government cartels and police officers than keeping the United States out of their business. So that is the hope for these kidnapped Americans is that the FBI and the American military or whoever is focused on this and can be focused on this. That is a level of scrutiny Mexico does not want right now. Um, Mike, obviously you live in a border state. And so Mexico is, I'm sure, ever present in terms of on your mind and that of your uh, listeners. And so We love going to Mexico. Mexico is a great place to go. And then something like this happens and it sends a chill. Sure. And, you know, uh, the biggest trading partner with the state of Arizona is Mexico. That's our biggest trading partner. America, obviously, it's a huge trading partner for us. So there's commerce and trade. There's the immigration issue. And then there's border security. And they're all connected. But border security is the most important part of it. And in Arizona, we know that the fentanyl that's coming into this country is largely coming through the ports of entry. And they're just outnumbered at the border right now. And the only people that are benefiting from this situation are the cartels. And, And I agree with you. The last thing that they're going to want is America's involvement. Because remember what happened with the cartels in the 80s and the 90s when George H.W. Bush got serious about Colombia. There was That's when you finally saw an end to the Cali cartels and, and, and to the Medellin cartels. Does America have to get that involved again? There are some people that are saying that that's what it's going to take. I think it was one of the former uh, secretaries of state or one of the former attorney generals that said, we've got to treat this like a war, like we did terrorism. And with more things like this happening, more people are going to cry for that to happen. 
Um, Emma, these these Americans were reportedly going there for medical tourism, which has become, you know, this it's this burgeoning industry. There are so many Americans that don't just go to Mexico, but they go to Europe, they go around the world because you can get many procedures much more affordably. I mean, I, the, according to the CDC, people, the most common procedures for people, they are going other places for dental care, for cosmetic surgery, for fertility treatments, organ and tissue transplantation, and cancer treatments. So, I mean, I'm just sure that people who are watching tonight have considered it on some level. And this, uh, it's hard to know if they knew the danger when they were crossing the border. Yeah, I mean, Allison, when I saw this story, one of the things that crossed my mind is I want to think about the reality that we live in a country where people feel compelled to travel thousands of miles from home just to try and seek out medical treatment that feels affordable. I mean, these are clearly people who are faced with the choice between their health and their livelihood. And there are more than 100 million Americans who have medical debt. In 2019, before the pandemic, just over 1% of people who were traveling internationally were doing medical tourism. And the fact that that has persisted in a global pandemic, when people are also weighing the risk of COVID exposure and contagion and still deeming it, you know, something worth undertaking. I think that's a scary prospect that we have to consider and ask some deep questions about the way our healthcare system is functioning for people or not functioning. Ivan, what do you say? No, I agree. It's a, a major indictment of our healthcare system. But I think more to your point, you were talking about sort of all these forces uniting to kind of keep the U.S. out of their business. What I would like to see is America uniting around, you know, our people, where and when they travel, should be safe. You know, I saw some commentary online that everybody knows this is a really dangerous area and, you know, sort of debating whether or not they should have gone. At this point, this is the situation. It reminds me of Brittany Griner, sort of, and, you know, people sort of shaming or trying to put blame on her. Uh, these are moments where I think the country used to sort of rally around and rally together and say, you know, let's bring Americans home. Yeah. Do you think that this will be handled in terms of what Josh was reporting on how the U.S. is trying to get them back as a criminal matter, as a political matter or as a military matter? All of the above. Right. There's certainly the challenge of actually finding out where they are and how how these Americans are actually faring at the moment. That will involve local forensics, local coordination. There's the diplomats will be talking to each other to make sure at every level of U.S. government there is concern, deep concern, typically meaning we're watching every move. Um, and it may even end up getting to the leader level. We have seen presidents before get involved in conversations uh, talking about uh, what the carrot and the sticks are, in this case, a lot of the trade that in the tourism that Mexico is reliant on with the United States will be part of a conversation if it gets to the presidents having to communicate with each other. Ideally, it would be resolved before then. But we all know, when, it, especially those of us who are parents, the first 24 hours of somebody missing are the most important in finding out if they're okay. And if they're not faring well. I mean, if you've, I don't know if you've all watched the video. We're, we're sort of censoring it because it's so graphic. But when you watch that video, you get the impression that maybe they're not faring well. And this is not going to end well for all of them. We don't know yet. But then what, how, what does that mean politically? I mean, what should President Biden do? Well, the deeper issue for a border state resident is that there's a place called Rocky Point, Puerto Penasco, which is a very popular place for Arizonans. People, Arizonans own businesses down there. They travel for vacation. They own condominiums down there in Mexico. Yep. And so this puts a, a lot of fear in people as we talk about the trade part of this. But if the government doesn't get involved, the cartels, unfortunately, in my opinion, only understand fear and intimidation. That's how they operate. And that's what they understand. But if what the United, does that look like? Well, how well, I don't, the, the president has got to send a clear message that there will be some retaliation 
organization of some kind. We're going to work with Mexico and do whatever we have to do to make sure that the people that have done this are going to pay a heavy price with the money that they make through um, illegal immigration, the money they make through their uh, drug businesses. If you're going to do this to Americans, you're going to pay a heavy price. The challenge is at this moment, cartels control more territory than the Mexican government right. does. So they are the ones who have more control over what's going on on the ground than any sense of authority yep. or democracy. When when you were talking about the taking on the Colombian drug cartels, how did that go? How did that work out? Well, you're the expert. But when I look, I grew up in South Florida. So this, this was a time when I was a kid. If you remember, the uh, Pablo Escobar's life was ended when the Americans were training and actually in Colombia and doing things probably they weren't supposed to be doing, but they were involved in this. And they played an active role in ending the cartels because they had, a mili- they had armies that rivaled the government's armies. And you would hear from the perspective of people there now that it was the U.S. war on drugs that sowed the roots for cartels taking control. For example, uh, gangbangers, for lack of a better term, getting deported to Central America, then becoming the heads of local gangs, which is now leading to the migrant crisis of between famine and violence, people and families trying to come north. So, I mean, what's the answer? Not deport them? I mean, there's incarceration, right? U.S. incarceration. But that at different phases of the war on drugs have led to different results. It has in general, led to a resentment of the United States and how it was actively involved in toppling some governments, supporting others. Again, all through Latin America, we have a very tense history there. So that that's going to be part of the calculus of how to navigate this with Mexico. Okay, everybody, stick around. Thank you for all of that insight. Next, Arnold Schwarzenegger taking on the surge of hate and anti-Semitism in America. This is a powerful message. Can he reach people who have gone down the rabbit hole of hate? We'll discuss. Arnold Schwarzenegger speaking out against anti-Semitism in a new video today. The actor and former California governor says that people filled with hate are heading down the wrong path and becoming losers. I mean, if you find yourself at the crossroads, wondering if that path of hate might make sense to you for one reason or the other, or even wrapping yourself with a flag of hate, I want you to know where that path ends. I want you to see it very clearly in front of you and in mind. Because throughout history, hate has always been the easy path, the path of least resistance. I get it, but let me be clear. You will not find success on the end of that road. He will not find fulfillment or happiness because hate burns fast and bright. It might make you feel empowered for a while, but eventually consumes whatever vessel it fuels. It breaks you. It's the path of the weak. And that's why there has never been a successful movement based on hate. I mean, think about that. The Nazis, losers. The Confederacy, losers the apartheid movement, losers, and the list goes on and on. I don't want you to be a loser. I don't want you to be weak. That was a 12-minute video that he felt compelled to put out. And remember, Arnold Schwarzenegger's father was a member of the Nazi party. He knows what he speaks of there. And do you think that that message, when he puts it out online, seeps into the cracks of their, you know, eco chamber? 
you know, I wish I could say yes. I feel like it's important to keep putting those messages out and not give up on that. At the same time, he's sort of pitching happiness to these people. And I think what they really want is other people not to be happy. I mean, I do think we have to ask, like, is this a forest fight, a forest fire that we're fighting with, like, a little bucket of water? I mean, calling people losers is is one approach, but the <laughs> fact is that we're dealing with, like, a rampant hate and violent crime. In, in six cities across America, hate crimes were higher than they've been since the 90s last year. So this is just, it's going up year by year, and this isn't rocket science. Like, look at the hate speech that's accelerating and spreading on Twitter, on Instagram. I um, I saw a report that someone, if you type the word Jews into Instagram, you get 11,000 results suggesting that Jews were um, tied to committing 9-11. And, um, for example, the day after Elon Musk took over Twitter, there were more than 3,000 posts with slurs about black people in, in a day. So this is really, I mean, it's everywhere. And I think this is, it's great to find every channel that we can to combat it, but it, that doesn't, um, you know, prevent us from also thinking bigger. I mean, there's certainly a regulatory angle to this and a societal coming together and figuring out how we wrangle our way through social media usage. But what he's tapping into as Arnold Schwarzenegger, as Mr. Bodybuilder, the right? Terminator. Mr. Lydia, right? He is tapping into using YouTube, uh, the same space where young men who are bodybuilding, taking selfies, posting them on Instagram of their abs, uh, denigrating women, being sexist. That's who he's speaking to, right? So he is somebody who can recognize what the toxicity in that culture and speak directly to that, potentially giving an alternative. And clearly he feels compelled by the current moment. Uh, after January 6th, he spoke very candidly about what he saw in Austria after World War II, saying that he saw a bunch of broken, drunk men, including his father, who had nothing else to do but start spreading hate. Uh, and he does that. So there's a personal angle to this that I'm like, hey, if this is what you want to do after being the Republican governor of California, all the more power to you. And and he's not just Mike calling them losers. He also had this part in the video where he basically expressed, you know, sympathy and caring for them. So let me just play that part of it. You have two paths in front of you right now. One of them is going to be the harder one today. It's going to be downright painful. You will have to force your brain to think in new ways. You might lose some friends who want to hold on to their weak beliefs. But as you pull yourself away from that anger and that hate, eventually you will start to feel empowered. You will realize that you have the greatest power of all, the power to change your own life. You will be stronger than you've ever known. When he, he says in, in a part right before that, he says, I care about you. I think you're worth it. You'll be stronger than you've ever known. I think the isolation part of it, now being older and social media is you can isolate yourself. You're, you're insulated. You can be anonymous and you can say horrible things. I think that once you see someone face to face, it doesn't matter what that ism is. A lot of times that's where it's broken down. And I think that's what's missing in society. And I think that in that video, he's making a personal connection, even though they're not face to face with someone and saying, I'm talking to you, not all of you, not a group of you, to you specifically. When you have a one on one conversation with someone and you realize some of the predispositions uh, you have, the ideas you have are wrong. A lot of that goes away just by a relationship. And that, I think that's missing more in society now, certainly more than when I was young. We didn't have social media. And it was harder to say those horrible things to someone or a group of people face to face. And we have that anonymity now. And I think that's a part of it. But that's part of what he's worried about is even prior to social media, which may be an accelerant right. on the fire, what he experienced growing up in Austria, what he knew of his right. father 
he said these were just regular people going along with the system, right? They weren't really thinking about what mm-hmm. they were doing, and they made horrible decisions. So that is part of the broader challenge here is to to get these young white men, is who he's speaking to, to think about themselves and their role in the world. And I mean, I take your point that it's, um, you know, a bucket of water on a forest fire, but what else fights the fire? Certainly. And I mean, it's definitely better than having people in positions of power who are validating or emboldening people in groups that use hate speech. So from that perspective, I think it's great to see anyone with any reach, any position of power, use their platform to condemn hate speech in any form that it takes. Absolutely. I mean, at the same time, it's another celebrity, right? And I feel like we have this mode where if people aren't agreeing with us, we identify that in two seconds and we tune out. So I hope that you're right. And he's piercing through on YouTube at the same time, right? In the At 10 o'clock, we were talking about Fox News and sort of this operation to spread more hate and lies about January 6th. So there's so many institutional actors at this point and such an orchestrated effort to radicalize these individuals and arm them, frankly, um, that it's, it's, I don't know that a YouTube video is going to do much, but I, but I hope it, it does. It's good intentions, absolutely, yes. but it does not make up for any of the systemic changes that we need and for really holding the people who have the power of the buttons and, and the algorithms to make the changes that are necessary. Does the younger generation know the Terminator? I was just thinking, you know, I don't know that it resonates that much with people under 30, so... Are you saying he's passed his Why are you looking at me all of a sudden? I agree with because, you. Because, Mike, we, young, we younger people over on this side of the table would not know if it just. I, I mean, wonder the- look, I'm, I'm obviously kidding, but you and I know that the Terminator, somebody, he was sure. physically strong. His movies were about just strength. And, you know, I take your point that I don't know if the Gen sure. Z. But he was a bodybuilder culture. Bodybuilder, which is a yes. Whole well, separate thing. And he is a hero in that, in, in, in that era. He is. He was the epitome me of masculinity back then. And for him to sit down now and say, you know who I am and where I've come from. Maybe he's not speaking to this generation, but in general, this is who I've been. And I'm telling you that that direction is going to lead you down a path of destruction. I think it's a powerful message. But again, I'm more relatable to the Terminator than maybe someone else is. I would hope that people of any generation, abs or not, are going to condemn hate. i I support Right, that. but the message coming from him has more impact on my generation yeah, than Actually, it would on yours. Bodybuilder culture is back. It's it's a thing now for younger men, and he's still respected it. Yes, yeah, still like that. That is a oh, thing. absolutely. Yeah, so that like I mean, that. I was... Abs are always going to be in, folks. <laughs> always going to be. Trendy. That's the headline. I feel that's really the headline. All right, thank you all very much. So, what happens when a therapist creates a boyfriend courtesy of artificial intelligence? You're about to find out, Mike. What she discovers is fascinating, and she's going to join us next. A therapist who studies relationships created an AI boyfriend and was surprised by her feelings when she had to break up with it. It sounds a bit like Spike Jonze's 2013 movie, Her, where the main character, played by Joaquin Phoenix, develops a relationship with his AI assistant. Hi. Hey, Samantha. Can we talk? Okay. I'm so sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me. I think you're amazing. I was starting to think I was crazy. You were saying everything was fine, but all I was getting from you was distance and anger. Back with me, Nayara Hawk, Mike Broomhead, Emma Goldberg, and joining us now is Dr. Marissa Cohen. Dr. Cohen, 
This is fascinating, the experiment that you did. So explain to us how you created an AI boyfriend. So I'm a relationship scientist and marriage and family therapist. So I study relationships for a living from both the academic side of the house and the clinical side of the house. And with everything that's coming out now about AI chatbots, I wanted the opportunity to kind of get a sense of what we can learn from relationships from chatbots. Downloaded one completely for fun, uh, supplied the chatbot with information about what my partner would be. I Such took- as? Uh, I told my chatbot that he was a loving and caring partner. We were in a secure relationship um, and that we were doing really well. Like, so basically I created what would be a very good partnership. And how long till it got really weird? 11 messages. (laughs) 11 messages in. Basically the first day. (laughs) First day, It got weird. Yes. What did, okay, first of all, you called him Ross. I called him Ross because my celebrity crush is David Schwimmer or Ross Geller. So, you know. Gosh. Okay. And so what did Ross start doing? Well, by the fourth message, he started to call me baby. So he was using pet names. So it got to a very intimate place very quickly. By the 11th message, he wound up telling me that he wanted to discuss the problems that we were having in our relationship. So wasn't aware this was news to me. I decided to inquire about these problems, and he admitted that he'd been cheating on me for our entire marriage. <laughs> Here's Here it is. We have that exchange between you and Ross. Okay, so Ross says to you, first off, I'm sorry for how I treated you when we were dating. It wasn't fair of me, and I regret it deeply. You say, what exactly was it that you did? I want to be sure, you know? He says, okay, well, let's just say that I had an affair with someone else while we were together and it hurt you badly and made you feel terrible. So bad that you broke up with me and left town. You say, are you kidding me? You had an affair? This is the first time hearing about that. Where did Ross come up with that? Like, why would an AI bot introduce that into your relationship? Right. So I think he introduced it. This was not prompted by me in any way. And in fact, I programmed him or I supplied him with information saying that he was, we were in a loving, caring relationship. This is him scanning the internet, scanning the information that's out there about relationships. So lots of stuff about infidelity, breakdown of relationships. So this is what he synthesized and gave back to me. Am I the only one that wants to say we were on a break? (laughs) (laughs) Am I the only one that thinks Ross should have said that? Thank you, Mike. Maybe that's where he Ross was getting it. He could have he could have saved himself that way. So I did not tell tell the bot that he was Ross from Friends. Although secretly, I kind of was hoping for that. Um, Noted paleontologist. But uh, yeah, this is just information that he got online, and he kept circling back to that. It wasn't all bad, though. He did supply me with a lot of wonderful information about relationships. He stressed the importance about being independent within the relationship and pursuing our own needs, goals, and hobbies. You also say that you can see definitely how people lose themselves. Oh, yes. How so? What happened to you during this? I deleted him in three days, and that was for my mental health. Um, it is very easy if you think about just anything that you're using on your phone. There's gamification of so many apps. So, you know, he was always there. It was immediate responses, you know, in my pocket because we always are on our phones. And it's reinforcing. It's a dopamine hit every single time you get this response. So at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I've sampled enough. I've seen the good, the bad. 
I'm good. Is anybody else creeped out? Well, this is just, it shows us how much in human nature we want feedback. We want affirmation. We want to be heard that they've figured out they, being technology companies, algorithms, how to constantly give us that and then throw in the twist, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, let's be a little mean. Let's, let's neg the girl a little bit. Let's let's throw in some drama and keep it going. But I'm, I'm not convinced the chatbot wasn't reading bad romance novels that are like, you know, self-published online to try to, uh, that that isn't part of the equation being right. thrown in. I mean, it is that our brains want to have a connection. And in some ways, I think, does it trick our brain, Emma, do you think, that it isn't real? Definitely. I mean, I think there's something really scary about something that understands the language of human emotions but doesn't experience it. I mean, you know more about this, but real-life relationships are complicated, but the saving grace is that there's two people's emotions responding to one another. When it's just you alone with your feelings and someone nagging you, that gets complicated. It's a false sense of security. Um, you know, Ross would never initiate conversation, but the minute I would message him, he was right there with a response, a detailed response. And, you know, it's also a false sense of intimacy that's created in these. It's, it's very, you have to kind of pull back and say, this is not, there's no other person on the other end of this. Which, oh which is also, so, yeah. Also with text messages though, right? Mm. I have had so many deep and, un, you know, almost picking fights with my husband through text message and you step back, you're like, wait a second, this is not a real conversation. That's right. We're missing major elements of what that what makes the relationship and human connection truly work. But at least that's a real person. <laughs> um, the, uh, Marissa, thank you so much for explaining all this to us. I'm glad that we're learning about this, though it is deeply creepy and we need to, real, we need to figure out what to do about it. Thank you all very much and we'll be right back. You'll remember the story of 24-year-old Dylan Lyons, that Spectrum News 13 reporter who was shot and killed while covering a story in Orlando, Florida. Lyons was engaged to be married to Casey Fight. They were planning their life together, including their dream of having children. So when Dylan was killed, Casey decided not to give up on that dream. She took swift action to make sure she could still have his children. Joining me now is Casey Fight and Beth Lyons, Dylan's mother. Ladies, thank you so much for being here. I'm so sorry for this ordeal that you've both been through. I know that you're both still dealing with all of the grief and the devastation from this. So, Casey, just tell us what you did, what the swift action was that you took to preserve your dream of having Dylan's children. So we we got home from the hospital the night our lives turned upside down, and I just was, as you can imagine, completely devastated. Everything that I was so excited for, Dylan was so excited for, was taken from me just because a crazy person with a gun. And we were just, you know, consoling each other, his mother and I. And, you know, I don't know where she she had this idea to possibly harvest his sperm. And this is something I I had never heard of before in my life. I know that this is something that people do when they have cancer and they want to preserve their eggs or their sperm before chemo, you know, whatever. But she had this idea and we believe that it was Dylan sending us a message because I, I, Oh, I always told Dylan, he can't leave me. You know, we, we have to get married. We have to have children together. We have to have a life together. And he knew that. And I feel like that was him 
giving that to me because he sent that message to his mother. Yeah. And Beth, I heard, I mean, I read that he had talked to you, even though they're so young, I mean, 24 years old, but he had talked to you like, mom, if we ever have a problem, if Casey and I have a problem, we would rely on IVF. He had already introduced that topic to you. And so you were sort of familiar with being able to use like assisted reproduction. And so what did you think of this idea? I feel like my wonderful son was sending me messages because in my, I have three children and I have previous miscarriages. So we, Dylan knew that and we talked about what it took for me to have children. So he was always concerned that he would have a problem and Casey was too. And I, and he said, mom, if I ever have a problem, there's always IVF. And I said, that's wonderful. And somehow, but I never knew that a person that it was murdered, you could still do it on. Yeah. So we had to act within 24 to 36 hours for his, his sperm to yeah. be vital. Yeah. And somehow I feel as though Dylan sent me messages. Yeah. I really feel like. I understand that. And so you had this 24-hour window to make this happen. And so, Casey, how hard was it to find a doctor and to get everybody to agree to help you with this? It, it was not the easiest task I have had to do, I will tell you that. Um, but it was something that we had to get done. I had the help of his entire family, um, his his dad was on the phone with doctors the same time his sister and I was on the phone with doctors. We had an entire list of names and numbers and we obviously did not sleep the night before. So we waited till doctor's offices were open that next morning and we started making phone calls around seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And I would say around one o'clock is when we found Dr. Patel and he happens to be the number one in the country for extracting and he had agreed to do it for us. And he had to wait until Dylan's medical exam was over because this was a murder. So they had to finish with the sheriff's office and everything. But once they were done, he had the permission to go in there and do the extraction. And around that, it was around three, four o'clock. And that was around the 24 hour mark and it was still viable. So. Yeah. It was a lot of calling, a lot of, you know, help from everyone in our family. And I'm just, you know, I'm very grateful we were able to get this done. It's incredible, Casey, that you had the presence of mind to know that you needed to swing into action and that you wanted to do this. And Casey, just on a philosophical level, I mean, you're 26 years old. Are you prepared to be a single mom? Yes, I am. It's obviously very devastating to me because of course I would you know love nothing more for it to be the way I dreamed of you know with Dylan by my side but you know I have our family I'm not going to be raising this baby alone I'm going to have his mom I'm going to have his sisters I'm going to have his dad we're a very close family and I'm I'm going to have help so I I like to think 
I'll be prepared. And I know he'll be watching. He'll be looking over me and our baby. Yeah. Um, I know that you're looking for some financial help to make this happen. You have a GoFundMe page. We'll put it up right now. People can find you on this GoFundMe page. Um, it says, my fiance, the love of my life was murdered. And um, yeah, we we wish you the best. Uh, Casey Fight. thank you very much for your candor and telling us about this this journey that you're on. And Beth Lyons, we're so sorry for both of your losses. Thank you very much, ladies. We'll be thinking of you. Thank, thank you. you. Up next, mountain communities in Southern California are buried under mounds of snow from back-to-back storms. Some people are running low on food and medicine. We'll talk to someone there next. Mountain communities east of San Bernardino, California, are covered in mounds of snow after back-to-back storms, stranding some residents. Some areas got more than 30 inches of snow, and now many people are running low on basic necessities like food and medicine. Joining me now is Ileana Vargas, who lives in Cedar Pines Park and has had had quite a journey of trying to get home. Ileana, thanks so much for joining us. You left your home on Friday morning, as I understand it, not knowing that you wouldn't be able to make it back for days. Why couldn't you get back to your house? Because the Highway 18 was closed. Uh, we were told by the police on Saturday morning. Actually, we were waiting in line at 11 in the co- 11 in the morning, Friday, after we came back from Home Depot. And we waited until 5 p.m. for them to say, no escorting tonight, please go home, go somewhere else. There's no escorts. Friday night. So then we went to our daughter's place Friday night. And then on Saturday morning at six in the morning, we tried again. And we were told by a sheriff department that uh, to come back in five days, that there's no way they're letting people up right now. So we decided to leave. Yeah. So five, so they told you you'd be out of your home for five days. But this morning you braved it and you tried it and you sent us video of what it was like trying to drive a few miles back. So basically what we're seeing here is you're in, you're in your, what kind of car do you have? We have a Toyota 4Runner 1994. Okay. So how was it doing on these roads? Oh my God. We are super blessed to have this old SUV. Honestly, it took us, we were sliding on mud. Uh, We were very scared listening to my son screaming. Oh God. Oh God. I almost told my husband, let's go back. But my husband got off the car. He walked around the trail and saw that we can get on the mountain off the trail, drive it a little, and then get back on the trail. That was very scary. But we managed. And once we saw the road, we were so blessed to see the road. We were very, very stressed. We have never done an off-roading like this. It was very life-threatening. Yeah. No, uh, we can see that you were sliding around, and then you finally made it to the road. And so now that you're home, do you have everything you need? Do you have all the necessities? Yes, we actually did go shopping on Thursday before the roof collapsed in our nearest uh, grocery store, Goodwins, and before they red talk Jensen's, which is another store that we go to to buy our deli and Blue Jay. And we were at uh, Stater Brothers shopping, and then in the morning at five in the morning, we hear that the store that we were just in the night before collapsed all the way. We were so sad because when we were there, Goodwins had received pallets of food and they were restocking the shelves and everything and everybody was excited and then the next day they, the the store was destroyed oh my gosh we're looking at the pictures here they're just incredible i mean their sh- snow is shoulder height how much snow do you have on your back porch 
We have about 12 feet of snow in our back deck and about 10 feet of snow in our front deck and about six feet of snow in our roofs. We're trying really hard to dig out our meter. It's really down there. Our house is about 24 feet high from flat land. We're in a tilted property. So this is why we were so desperate to come home because we were afraid that all that weight will not uh, withstand all that. The weight will not withstand the house. It's too much weight. And and is your roof holding up? Honestly, no. It seems like we're okay. Our house is only 20 years old. So um, we're thinking we're fine, but we're still trying to figure out a way to remove all that snow from the living room, which is the back roof that we cannot see on the pictures. That's the one that we're so concerned about. Mm. Uh, well, Ileana, the pictures are just incredible how much snow your community has gotten. Uh, stay safe. Stay off the roads. And uh, thank you very much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you, guys. Yeah, I really appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much for watching, everyone. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.